Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast today. And today we have a very special guest that I was very intrigued about having on the show because I saw a film called The Good Nurse that she was portrayed in. And so I want to welcome Miss Amy Lochran to the Unimpressed podcast. How are you doing today, Amy? I am doing fantastic. What an honor. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you coming on because, ironically, I know Mountainside Hospital and I know that whole area. Uh, We lived in North Caldwell, New Jersey, for 12 and a half years. Okay. And recently relocated to... Charleston, South Carolina during the pandemic. And uh, yeah, that was pretty close to home. And this journey and this story, where were you at and what year was this? So I was working as a travel nurse at Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey, which is near Princeton. I, I think I started working there in 2000, 2001. If Charles Graber, the, uh, the author of the, the book, The Good Nurse, was here, he could tell you the day I started and the day I left, but I don't know things in chronological order. So it was 2001-ish. And then one of my favorite teammates started working with me in 2002. um, And his name was Charles Cullen. Charles Cullen. So when you first met Cullen, I mean, you just, you resonated with him, you know, as far as a worker, a coworker, and y'all became friends. And how long was the friendship? So the friendship was about a year and a half. And yes, he was not only my closest confidant at work, we became very bonded. Um, working in an ICU and especially a very busy ICU you trauma bond very much like soldiers do. We became like family. And he was the person that I confided in most. And he made me laugh. He was extremely smart and had this intense sardonic humor. And yeah, we just clicked. We were very, very close. And how long had you been in the nursing field? Uh, when you met Colin? At that time, I believe it was about 16 years I had been a nurse. So you had a lot of experience, obviously. Yes. And there was no red flags initially at all? There were no red flags. I've had a lot of guilt about that. I do remember thinking that he was depressed, uh, but most night nurses were depressed. Uh, I, I remember thinking that he probably uh, struggled uh, with some mental health. And yet most of the night nurses when you're working in critical care struggle with some emotional health issues. So I know I really did not have any indication whatsoever that there was something wrong. Did you ever see him associate with any other people 
you know, beside yourself or beside workers, you know, in the hospital? Yes, actually, it was me and Charlie and another nurse, uh, Donna Hargreaves, who was his other best friend. And in fact, we all changed our schedules so that the three of us could work together. They called us the three musketeers. I am still very close with Donna Hargreaves. And Donna was actually closer to Charlie than I was. He was very close with the two of us. And also the rest of the staff adored him. He was a great worker. He had a wonderful work ethic and... Everyone wanted him on their team. I know movies are portrayed differently. How how close uh, did the movie portray the situation? The way that the screenplay writer Christy Wilson Cairns uh, wrote the friendship, I think, was perfect because there. I, it's very difficult to help people to understand how close nurses do become without actually being uh, in each other's lives outside of the hospital. Uh, because a lot of us are just sleeping, eating, and working, and surviving. And when we're at work, we tend to, and especially night nurses, we tend to use those people as our, whether it's, it's good or bad, that becomes our social network. So the only way that Christy could really help people understand how close we were was to show Charlie at my home with me and my daughters. That piece of it did not happen. However, if I had lived closer to the hospital, I could have seen that we would have hung out in that way. But the rest of the emotional part of that movie was beautifully portrayed. When you are a nurse and you're in those situations, just in generally, and you think about the emotions that run through, what would you call a floor in the hospital? What would y'all call it? You can, yeah, you can call it the unit, the floor. We definitely call it the floor. When we're on the floor, that means that we are doing actual patient care, but the unit floor, either one of those is fine. How much of a learning curve uh, with the emotions flowing through a floor at a hospital is it? You become, just in general, do you become desensitized to some extent because there is so much energy and emotion coming through where you work? I think it's more about disassociated rather than desensitized. So I believe that we change our emotions to deal with the trauma. Um, people are dying. Uh, we are. We have so much adrenaline and cortisol running through our our bodies that if we attached constantly attached to our emotions rather than dissociating, we wouldn't be able to even just function as critical care nurses. So I do think that it does something to nurses and I think that it affects our mental health because we cannot normalize. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Feeling the deep emotions of what happens when we lose a patient, because we still have to move on to the next patient. So, yeah, it's there's always... And especially when there's a lot of codes happening and when Charles Cullen was on the floor and he was working with us, we could have a code, two or three codes a night. So we could be losing patients every single night. And that's not easy. It's not easy for us. During this time period, the movie showed you had some anxiety issues and so forth. How relevant was that? So it wasn't just about the anxiety piece of it. I have, well, had and have a deadly uh, electrical cardiomyopathy. And during that time, I needed surgery. So I was really nervous about many things. I was really nervous about my employer finding out that I was actually too sick to be working. I was a contract nurse. So if I missed a certain number of shifts, I would not only lose my contract, I would have lost my health insurance. So I was very, very nervous about that. So yeah, it was a really, really tense time for me. And then after Charles Cullen was fired from his job, I had no one really to rely on, no one that knew how sick I was. He was the only person. So y'all kind of supported each other and as kind of filling the gaps, if you will, will kind of create those relationships. A lot of my family was in North Caldwell since 1951. They actually built North Caldwell. Wow, um, you were a Jersey boy at heart. Yeah, Art Ruffalo was my great uncle, and he brought the family from Newark in 1951, started a construction company called the Ruffalo Brothers, and built the first section in North Caldwell. Uh, and Are I you think, related to Mark Ruffalo? Uh, I don't think so. Ruffalo, Sopranos, Ginny and Tassios. Yeah, no kidding. David Chase was from North Caldwell, went to high school during the time my father did, and actually wrote wrote Sopranos about my family. No way. Yeah. That's yeah. some crazy trivia right there. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. In the Soprano house, before we moved down here in, during the pandemic, the Soprano house where they filmed is like a mile away from the house. It's just right up the road. Yeah. Oh, boy. You are Jersey. The hill, I was the redneck. You know, because I was, I grew up in North Carolina and I'd always, we, because my dad went to school in Mars Hill and we would go back and forth. So I used to see both parts of the world. You know, the people in New Jersey, they, they're hard asses, but they, most of the time they play by the rules. Yeah. You know what I mean? And do, when you're in that setting, in a, a hospital setting, they're, most of the time they do the right thing. That's you know right. What I'm That's right. Yeah. That's right. And Charlie definitely went against, um, a code and the code of nurses because we we have to rely on each other. And so it was finding out that he was right in front of us doing these sinister, horrible things. It, it rocked everything 
that we felt for each other as a team also. It really affected the nurses, all of us, all of my coworkers. And when did this come to light for you? When did you start noticing things? What was your first thing you noticed there might be some issues? Unfortunately, I did not notice until after Charlie was fired and until I was given evidence that I could not deny. And I defended him right up until I saw the evidence myself. And then hindsight is always twenty twenty. Then I started putting things together, certain things that he had been doing. And I just, I, I was devastated knowing that he did those things right in front of me and I didn't see it. I, I struggled with that for years, struggled with, with the guilt of that. Now it showed in the movie when you're going through this, you, you met with him. Did they record him? You recorded him. Did you have a wire on you or something? So yes. Uh, the hospital was definitely not assisting with the detectives and with the investigation, and they were actually trying very hard to throw the detectives off the case. So I started working secretly with the detectives, and I started recording conversations with Charlie over the phone, as well as um, just keeping in touch with him. And we found out he had been hired by another hospital and he was about to start working again. So he was see, he was headed off to a different hospital and they asked me to wear a wire. During that time, I did get him to confess to at least his guilt that he said he really wanted to go down fighting. And I got somewhat of a confession from him and the wire malfunctioned. So it was, it was really scary because after that happened, I knew that I was going to have to truly be dragged into a trial because it was going to end up being my word against his. Did he do the same thing each time or was it different types of injections? What I mean, what was it exactly? Was it portrayed the, the same way in the movie? Is that what he was doing? So the movie, I think, just focused on the medication digoxin, which is a heart medication specifically for atrial fib and also insulin. He did use those medications mostly. However, what we saw is that there was a specific cocktail that he would use and he would inject the bags and we would then hang those bags um, throughout the unit. And he really did not have anything specific that he continued to use. I think that he experimented a lot as well. That's my opinion that he experimented a lot. He never told me that he did. He may have said, said as much in the confession when he did confess completely for seven or nine hours with the detectives. I've never heard the entirety of his confession, but it's my theory that he, after seeing all of the evidence and going through all of the medical records, it looked like he was experimenting. Now, I had um, Catherine Ramsland uh, on my podcast, and she's a, a forensic psychologist, 
and this is her space. And, you know, she talked about there's some types of triggers in people, neuroticism or whatever it may be. What do you think his agenda was? What was his, I mean, what was this doing for him, do you think? I believe that it was an obsession with him. Um, I know that his first attempt at harming someone was even before he was a teenager. I think he was about nine years old the first time he tried to poison someone. So to me, that tells me that there's something very, very deep there. And for it to have happened at such a young age, who knows what kind of abuse he actually endured. I do believe that he became obsessed with killing. I think that there was a rush for him knowing that he was being seen as our hero, so to speak. So he was extremely performative in the way that he would educate us after the after the codes after the people would die but he was he was also very ritualistic in the way that he cared for people after they died in his postmortem uh care so it's hard to say i don't believe that there was any eroticism i almost feel like he was an asexual type person there was never certainly never any boy girl stuff going on uh, between him and I. And I also believe that that is one of the reasons why we were so close is because it was never like that. There was there was never anything or never any indication that um, that was on his mind. I don't know. It, it's just my opinion. When you had this realization, your first realization about what he was doing, how did you feel about that? What was that like? When I first saw the evidence, I was so devastated in so many ways. It was like a complete and utter paradigm shift. Here, everything felt like it just completely turned upside down. This person that I trusted, that I cared for. And I also honestly thought that if there was a monster right in front of me, I would somehow know instinctively that this person was bad or evil. And I didn't feel any of those things. So not only was I, I had to come to terms with the fact that there was a murderer that was my, one of my closest friends, but that I did not have those instincts. So I had to really kind of reestablish who I was as a person and my own belief systems. And then also, I had to put myself in in a situation where I had to choose between my own health and helping to put this murderer behind bars. And I had to truly look at my own moral compass and figure out, was I putting my daughters at risk? Was I, um, you know, was I going to lose my career? Was I going to die because of all of this? So everything kind of went up in the air in a matter of 10 seconds. And I just blanked out. I actually couldn't remember driving home that day. Talk about disassociating. I just, I, I could not deal with it. And when I, when I got my bearings back and then it was, I needed to 
engaged as part of myself that wanted to protect the patients and to also make it right because I hadn't stopped him and I didn't see it. So I had to make sure that those families knew that I was going to do everything to make it right. How old were you? I, I feel my asking. I was 38. I was in my 30s. Gotcha. And how did this affect your, your daughters? My oldest daughter, when I initially told her about it, it was more about wanting to make sure that she understood if something came out that I had... I was friends with a serial killer and no one would be able to know that I was working undercover. There may have been an opportunity for people to misunderstand and perhaps think that I was part of it, that maybe I was helping him and I wouldn't be able to defend myself because I would be working undercover. And I wanted to make sure that she understood that. And she was very much like, we need to get him, you know, we, we need to make sure that he doesn't kill anyone ever again. She had a much more developed moral compass than the bureaucrats that were working in that corporation that was pretending to be a hospital. When was it a political issue for the hospital? It's always about capitalism, isn't it? It's always about money. Mm -hmm. And five hospitals knew that he was doing something. Five hospitals knew that he was killing people. And they sent him on to the next hospital, which is why he ended up being able to murder over 400 patients. So in this capitalistic corporation, we are capitalizing on people's suffering. And that means that it's taking the soul out of what we do as caregivers, because these corporations are much more concerned about how much money they're making. And some of their CEOs are multi-millionaires because of running these hospitals that are pretending to be places that we are caring for people. It's very, very complicated when when we're talking about money versus human lives. Well, I mean, I've said this before, is like we're probably one one of the only countries that fights to keep people alive and fights to kill them. Uh, yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's, uh, it's like, let's put a Band-Aid and ride this out on a situation and uh, then unearthing the situation the right way. I mean, do you think after this experience, you think the medical system could change in some way, or you think it's going to be stuck in this paradigm of capitalism for the next? Do you ever have any mindset of, you know, how the system could be fixed after going through this? I have thought about that a lot. I think the way that this system is going to be fixed is to focus on the mental health of the nurses. I really feel like they are, they're the ones that are at the bedside and I think that that has to be forefront in the way that we are caring for nurses. And if we focus back on how to take care of our nurses, then we will always be able to take care of the patients because we're not going to change that that money system. It's not going to change. There, there's no way. I mean, we see what the political environment is right now. That's that's the last thing that we're going to be able to change. I do, however, think 
that hospitals from the ground up can care for their nurses better. And I do think that after the pandemic, that is the only way that these hospitals are going to survive is to focus on the emotional and mental happiness and well-being of the nurses. How about training? It seems like a lot of things are left out, you know, from how foods affect people's bodies and so forth. It's almost like things are, they pick and choose how they want to train doctors and how they want to train nurses. Is there any anything you see uh, that comes to mind like that you ever thought of? You know, like, are we really looking at the foundation of where these people are coming from and, and and what their environment they're in and so forth. I think those things are talked about. I think that there are some groundbreaking uh, hospitals and care systems that are trying to incorporate more naturopathic and energetic uh, type of care that would help people, lifestyle changes versus medicine, but it's a slow process. Science is a dogma, um, and it's very hard to get people to change the paradigm and the culture. We can have, we can certainly have research that is released, and people will read it. And yet, to make a system change and a policy change, we're about twenty to. 30 years behind each level of research. So that's that's where we're at. And it's still that way. It takes at least 10, 20, 30 years for us to change. And by that time, there's already new research and that has come to light. So even with technology, we're just behind. We're always 10 steps behind. But there are people out there and there are clinicians out there that are trying. What are you doing today and with your career and so forth? So I work very closely right now with, um, with people who are trying to change the system. I am an advocate for the mental health of nurses and how we can get there without necessarily the assistance of our corporations that we work for. So I went on a deep, deep spiritual quest after everything happened with Charles Cullen. And from there, I discovered ways to better take care of myself. And I'm trying now to share that with other healthcare workers. I retired about a year and a half ago. And I've been writing, I've been working on workshops, I've been traveling a lot. And now I am working on a special project with Charles Graber, who was the investigative reporter who wrote the book, The Good Nurse. When you say spiritual journey, what was that? Just to give you an idea about myself, I'm a, I'm a clairsentient. And this is something that uh, has slowly got more intense because the more the more I dive into it with certain things and um so that I mean that's interesting I mean what was your journey like and and what is your what's going on so I started taking workshops and 
I wanted to figure out why I would energetically align myself with serial killer. It said a lot about me that I was drawn to his darkness. And what was it within myself that I could connect so deeply with someone with that much evil in them? And so I became a hypnotherapist and then... I went from modality to modality. I took every workshop that I could possibly take. I traveled all over the world and met with holy people with, I am a Reiki master. I did reconnective healing. I had one-on-one relationships with um, Eric Pearl, who did the reconnection. I have, oh my God, I just returned from Bali and had some spiritually transformative shifts just recently. So that for me really was discovering that we are truly here on a path, our own path. Yep. I think people need to look within themselves. Yes. And I also know for myself, and I think that's also why it's challenging for me to talk about my own journey, is because everyone's journey is so different. And mine started to show up as understanding that we are a light being. We are a light being with a body, and we are using this body to have experiences. And I think that it's challenging for me to talk about because we're discussing murder. And when you say things to people like, oh, well, you wanted to have this experience here on this planet, I think that sometimes it can sound almost insensitive. It's almost Mm -hmm. in a way that when people say it was God's plan, well, we don't know what a god is we don't no one really truly knows that so telling someone what their journey is um through experiencing your own journey i think can sound sometimes quite selfish i'm always a little hesitant to talk about it because i need to be sensitive to what this subject matter is and i never want people to believe that a Charles Cullen was there to give them an experience. Even though that may be my understanding for my own journey, I would never I would never try and help someone else believe that. I think you're probably a very highly sensitive person, highly sensitive and I think that fear if you're a highly sensitive person and and you're open in that kind of space and fear affects people different ways. And if something, if it's spiritual warfare or whatever it is, something attaches to you, uh, I don't think people realize how people that are highly sensitive are affected in those situations. And, and you, did you, you probably, you probably had no idea what was going on at the time, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. I know that my journey now and being able to feel energy, experience energy in a way that I am very conscious of it. I'm sure that I felt that energy before. I just did not understand it. I also have a very deep um, meditation practice. I am very connected to my guides. 
I am very connected to um, just my inner world now and how we are, all of us so connected. I am loving that part of my life. And yet the growth that comes along with that spiritual quest is not easy because I had to come to terms with what my darkness was. I had to come to terms with who I was and putting that up against a mirror of a serial killer um, was very intense, very, very intense. What's your foundation? What, who, your mom and dad, where was your mom and dad from? So my parents were from upstate New York and my father, um, my father was very spiritual. My grandfather uh, was uh, clairvoyant. Uh, my my great grandmother actually read cards for people and um, and tea leaves. And my grandfather also um, he was a well known psychic in our area. He um, he in fact uh, would walk out into a, um, a a huge field and be able to pick up a four leaf clover within ten seconds. He he was just so cool. And my mother's side of the family, my grandmother, introduced me to Edgar Casey and metaphysical uh, practices and UFOs and uh, and the pyramids of Giza. And she was so interested in the metaphysical. And back then, it was parapsychology. So I was I was certainly given a foundation of understanding that there was something more out there at a very, very young age. Where's the bloodline of the family come from? My grandfather on my mother's side, he was Native American and German. My grandmother was Scottish. My grandfather was French and Welch, um, gotcha. but mostly we were mutts. Gotcha. So there's a thread of Native American there. I believe so. When we did, uh, when we did our genetic 23andMe or Ancestry.com, uh, there were definitely some uh, some Native American connections. Interesting. I mean, there was a lot of Native Americans. Um, I had this theory about a lot of Native Americans took Italian names, last names, so they wouldn't be persecuted uh, yes. in the Northeast area. And uh, uh, that's that's an interesting topic that nobody ever talks about. I had uh, Rita Gigante on my podcast, and her father was uh, Vincent the Chin Gigante, and she's a medium, she's a psychic, a healer. And highly sensitive person as a kid growing up, high anxiety, didn't know what was going on. And, you know, and I could tell she was the real deal, you know, Ooh. and just think about growing up in that household. You know, he was head of the Genovese uh, crime family and head of the uh, syndicate, you know. So, you know, kind of relating that to your situation, highly sensitive people, if they're not educated on what their internal being is, you know, you could go down the road of, uh, you know, drugs, alcohol, all these things. Yeah. Cause I, I was that person. Oh yeah. You, you know what I mean? Cause I didn't know what was going on with myself. Yeah. You know, when I was, you know, I had all these friends and entertainment that, that try that showed me this life 
And out of all my friends, I was all the, the friends that were seeking this. I was probably the last one to even imagine anything. In a way, it's something that's not talked about, but I think that happens a lot. You, you know, know, I was uh, when you were talking. I was also thinking about how Charlie Cullen, he and I. When you think about it statistically, how we met, I lived in upstate New York. I traveled almost four hours to the hospital as a travel nurse, and he lived in Pennsylvania. So the odds of us working together were very, very, so statistically right there, it was, you know, one in a million and then statistically thinking that I could work with, alongside, and befriend the most prolific serial killer in American history, that I did that. And not only became friends, but was able to convince him to confess. It was like one in a billion. So you know that there had to have been some things behind the scenes that brought us together. And I certainly have received those those messages from my higher self, from guides, um, how then I was supposed to use that, that, that understanding. I remember when I was with my mother, um, I was probably 15, and I remember specifically, I was in the car with her. We were from this very, very small town in upstate New York. And I said to my mom, don't you ever feel like you're here for like a huge, like a big reason? Like there is a significant reason for you to be here. And she said, never, not once, never in my life. And she told me that even as a young, young girl, like four or five years old, she said, I was always looking for what was my purpose? Like, why was I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Like, I was always waiting for the thing that was supposed to show up as my purpose. We're programmed to chase, you know, chase or find, you know, and that, when actuality, you can just, you don't need to find or chase anything. You need to find yourself. You know, you know what I mean? And it's, and a lot of people don't realize that. And that's probably 90% of the, the population, unfortunately, you know, because there's probably a ton more people that could tap into better things um, than they have because of the way we, <clears throat> the way society is structured. Truly, my journey brought me all the way back to knowing that this is the adventure that I wanted. This adventure was for me. It was for me. Now that you're dialed in, if you are in that position again, I'm sure you would recognize the energy the right way because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I can't, I don't think you can beat yourself up for that at all, you know, because if you don't know something, you just don't know. You have to, I think you have, with what you're going through, you have to experience, you know, you have to have that experience to really understand what it is. Well, guilt can be a really big motivator. It's not a healthy motivator. And yet that guilt did put me on the right spiritual path. And for that, I'm grateful. I remember that it was a motivator and it helps me to be empathetic to those people that are using 
negative parts of themselves to push themselves, how to then turn that around so that we can motivate ourselves through something like joy and happiness. Well, for you to be able to internalize what you internalize, you have a very strong mind. A lot of people can't internalize what you internalize and, and be able to come out the other end. A lot of people would just give up. You, you know what I mean? I mean, that takes a strong person to do that. You know, I understand that, you know, it really does. You know, when you when you have to internalize trauma or, or tragedy at a high level, I mean, and, and be able to come out of that and be okay, that's a big deal. So you should applaud yourself for that. You know what I mean? Thank you. That made me cry. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm talking about this from experience myself. Yeah. You know, and just understanding where I'm at now and, and where I was. You know what I mean? So you're clairsentient. So tell me what that looks like for you. Well, I have, have heat coming out of my hands, a lot of energy coming out of my hands. I think I'm a natural healer. I never had any Reiki training, anything like that. I, I got my Reiki practitioner's license naturally you know i think there's people that have these natural abilities and there's certain things like reiki whatever it gives people with abilities to go to but sometimes i think people may be hide under that club a little bit and may not have real abilities too you know i agree yes you know what i mean so at least or at least not have the ability to tap into it you know i can get around energy like i feel like i'm peeling off layers every day and i can get around some bad energy and I can feel it. I can actually feel it hit me. And I can feel, I can know if I can turn it on the dime and, and, and put that back out to the world and be pissed off or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's pretty nimble. So I'm trying to figure out how to manage that, you yeah. know, or if I'm, or if I'm in a meeting with somebody, I can read what the person's thinking in the meeting, you know, and sometimes I will tell them what they're thinking. That's not good. I have to manage that better. <laughs> You know what I mean? I do. <laughs> yeah, I have to manage that a lot better. You know, they don't like being told the truth. It's very interesting, but I can I can feel I can feel everything. I mean, I, I've I mean, I've had animals uh, come up to me. I've had I'm sitting right here. I had deer come up to my window. Like I try to take in light every day and then close it off. Right? Yeah. This is something new. And I've had 200 robins follow me in a tree line, like just weird stuff. So do you have, uh, do you have lucid dreaming? A little bit, a little bit. I mean, I saw a white dolphin comes in my dreams every now and then. It's almost like I'm engineered with no fear in a way. And I don't know if I, if I need to break through more because talking to Rita, she told me that, uh, right now I'm using my left and right side of my brain and the right side of the brain is is building intuitiveness. As I can continue to accept that, she said, look out. I'm, I mean, I'm ready for it. I'm excited to see what it is. I just want to make sure I'm doing the right thing or whatever I'm supposed to do, you yeah. know? And, sure. And like, and like with these podcasts, I want to educate, you know, I try to unearth people on who they are and, and make it more about educating people about life yeah. with people's stories. Beautiful what you do. Where do we, we find stories we have a website what's what do you have out i there? do have a website and i'm very naughty about updating it um uh amythegoodnurse.com and really the best way to follow my journey is to look me up on instagram and i'm amy the good nurse on instagram cool 
Cool. Well, I would do that myself. And I, I appreciate you coming on here and spilling the beans, if you will. Continue your your positive journey and you're you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much and continue to do what you're doing. Namaste. So this is Amy uh Larkren and I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bain Productions. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.